Hey, my name is Caleb and I'm a pastor in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada, which is right next door to Toronto. I've been convinced that the good news of Jesus Christ is the most unique and life-changing message ever, and I want you to know it too. That's why I created this podcast. It's sermons, devotions, and other teaching that I've done to help people know the Bible better so they can know the height and length and width and depth of the love of Christ. So if you're finding that love here, why don't you share it with someone you know so they can experience that love also. And if you want to continue this conversation about anything you hear, you can write me an email at caleb.schultz at crossoflife.net. Now I pray that you're blessed by today's study of God's Word. The text for us is Mark 12, 35 to 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the gospel of the Lord. Uh, So this is the last in a uh, section of questions that Mark records for us in Mark chapter 12. Uh, The first four questions were all questions that were asked of Jesus, right? Remember, he was asked about authority, about politics, about marriage and the resurrection. And finally, last week, we went through what the greatest commandment is. Uh, But this text here, as we finish up this chapter, is Jesus turning the tables, Jesus is now going to ask a question, and because we understand the context of all of chapter 12 and the end of chapter 11 leading up to this point, there's a beautiful contrast in the context. You understand that? There's contrast in the context. If you were to just look at this text by itself, you wouldn't see the beauty of what leads up to this. As Jesus has asked a whole bunch of questions, he then turns the tables and asks a question, and so we're gonna learn something really cool about what Jesus thinks is important to ask about in contrast to what we think is important to ask about. I want to break the teaching into three parts today. Uh, First, we're just going to look at Jesus' question and answer it and understand the power and principle behind that question that he's trying to teach us. Then I want to show uh, where Jesus wants you to see a negative example of the principle and then a positive example of the principle. Okay, so the principle, the negative example, the positive example. Uh, Jesus asks this question, why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Um, It was very commonly believed at that time that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, was going to be in the biological lineage of King David. Remember, David was the, the young boy who slayed the giant, became the greatest king in Israel's history. 
Um, the reason the people believed this was that in 2 Samuel 7, there is a place where God very explicitly says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Um, this prophecy is alluding to the Messiah, that the Messiah would come from David's biological lineage. And like I said, this was pretty widely accepted among the Jews at that time. Uh, Jesus' question, though, is why do they say that? Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah will be David's son when David himself in Psalm 110 says this, the Lord said to my Lord, talking about the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other, in other words, the question that Jesus is asking is, is the Messiah David's son or is he David's Lord? Maybe we don't totally get that question because we don't live in as much of a patriarchal society as they did, but they understood that if a person, a man was a, a, a man's son, he would never be higher in status than his father. It was just unheard of. It would not happen that way. So either in their minds, the Messiah would be David's son in that he would be from the biological lineage of David, or he would have to be something else in order to be his Lord. So Jesus' question here is, well, which is it? Is he a son? Is he under David? Or is he David's Lord? Is he above David? And for us, the answer, of course, is very easy because we know who the Messiah is and what he's like. The answer is yes, he's both, right? Jesus is both God and man. According to his divinity, he is David's Lord. According to his humanity, he is David's son. According to his divinity, he is above David. According to his humanity, he is below David. So the answer, of course, to the question is yes. But I think what's important to ask ourselves then is why does Jesus ask this question of them? Of all the things he could have asked them about, why does he ask them about this? Um, and I think there are three reasons. One of them is just really quick. Um, the, the Jews had an understanding that the Messiah was going to be uh, the son of David because in their mind, that was the only way the Messiah made sense. Because in their culture, the biggest problem that they woke up with every morning was Roman occupation. And so in their mind, what would solve Roman occupation was a human Messiah who would come and restore Israel to its former political glory. The problem was they had basically avoided the idea that the Messiah would be here for spiritual reasons. In fact, if you look at the rabbinical writings in and around the time of Jesus, you notice that Psalm 110 is eerily absent from the writings of the rabbis. It's almost like they ignored that part of the Bible. And so what Jesus is effectively saying is you guys have reduced the scriptures down to the things that make sense to you and not the things that you would rather not deal with, which is something that every culture, every person needs to wrestle with. Are there parts of the Bible that I know are in there, but I refuse to read them or I refuse to apply them to my life? I refuse to believe them because they're inconvenient or they might require me to change the way that I live or they might require me to value things differently. Um, every one of us needs to wrestle with that. But I think there's a bigger principle that Jesus is trying to teach here. He's not just convicting them of their inability to see all of the scripture. Um, he's first of all asking them if they know the most important book of the Bible. Do they know the Psalms? Jesus comes and says, hey, you know this verse from the Psalms? What do you guys think about this? And you see what happens? Radio silence. The Sadducees, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were all there for the questions. Hey, Jesus, what about the marriage at the resurrection? What do you think about paying taxes to Caesar? But all of a sudden, when Jesus asks a question about the Psalms, no one can be found. And maybe it was 
connected to lack of writing from the rabbis about that. I, I don't know exactly, but I wonder if the exact same thing could happen in here. That if Jesus would come in here on a Sunday morning and say, hey, Caleb, I'm taking preaching duties for this Sunday, and he would come up here and he would say, so what do you guys think about that verse from the Psalms? They would get a whole bunch of blank stares because we've never read it. Not that we, we forgot about it, but that we've never even opened the book of Psalms to read some of those things. You know, next week is uh, going to be Reformation Sunday. Reformation is a festival we celebrate every year to remember the work of Martin Luther just over 500 years ago with his colleagues as they fought for the gospel in the church uh, in, in, um, in Europe. Uh, Martin Luther and his colleagues, they, they were fighting for this idea that you could be saved not because of your works, but become, uh, excuse me, completely because of God's work on your behalf in Jesus. And that you would just simply believe that Jesus has done this for you, and then you would be free, free from obligation to live up to the law. And we celebrate that every last Sunday of October. Um, but you know where Martin Luther started to understand the gospel? Most people would, would answer that question, I think, if they know Luther's history with the tower experience. Maybe you've heard this story. Uh, Luther is agonizing over Romans chapter one. He's, he's wrestling with this phrase, the righteous will live by faith. And he thinks to himself, because of his old Catholic upbringing, that that means that I have to live in a righteous way in order to live forever with God. But then in a moment of, well, I would say God-inspired enlightenment, he realizes that that righteousness is given to him through faith because of the work of Jesus. And he describes that moment as if heaven was open for him. He was completely reborn and ushered into glory because he finally understood it did not depend on him. It completely depended on God and God had guaranteed it in Jesus. That's what most people would say if they were asked, how did Luther discover the gospel? And that wouldn't be a wrong answer, uh, but if you would ask Luther himself, he would say the Psalms. Luther loved the Psalms. Maybe he discovered first the gospel in Romans 1, but he understood the depth of the gospel because of the Psalms. I just wanted to share a couple things that Martin Luther wrote about the Psalms. He said, it seems to me as if the Holy Ghost had been pleased to take on himself the trouble of putting together a short Bible, touching the whole of Christianity, in order that those, they who are unable to read the whole Bible may nevertheless find almost the whole sum comprehended in one little book. The Psalter, that's another way of talking about the whole book of Psalms, is the very paragon of books. Luther would contend to every doctrine in Scripture is contained in the Psalms. If you're not going to read the whole Bible, just read the Psalms. He says this also, every Christian who would abound in prayer and piety ought to make the Psalter his manual. In my opinion, any man who will but make a trial in earnest of the Psalter will soon bid the other pious prayers adieu and say, ah, they have not the sap, the strength, the heart, the fire that I can find in the Psalter. They are too cold, too hard for my taste. In other words, what Luther is saying is if you understand the prayers of the Psalter, you will dispense with all the other ways that you pray because you will realize the power contained in those Psalms. Now, I know I, I bang the drum of the Psalms quite a bit, <laughs> um, and that's for this reason. First of all, I think much of North American Christianity has lost the beauty of praying and meditating on the Psalms, but if you want more like objective reasons, Jesus thinks the Psalms are really important. He asks people about them. 
The apostles think the Psalms are really important. The Psalms are quoted more than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament. Martin Luther thinks the Psalms are important. They are the, it's the very paragon of books of the Bible. Uh, and if any of you are willing to stand up and say that you know better than Martin Luther, the apostles, and Jesus, please let me know. But until then, I'm going to bang this drum that we ought to be praying the Psalms. Because Jesus, the, the first question he asks when he gets the chances about this book, and I fear that myself included, don't know this book well enough. Okay, so he says, know the Psalms. And second, he says, know what I care about. You notice all these questions come to Jesus about marriage and about politics and about authority and about the law. And, and then Jesus, when he finally has the chance to turn the tables and ask a question of his own, what does he ask? Is the Messiah God and man? Like, that's what Jesus cares about. It's not that he doesn't care about those other things. Remember, he gives a good answer about marriage and about politics and so on. But when he has the chance to, to change the tone of the conversation, he just asks the question, am I God and man? Is the Messiah God and man? And I would love to work through all the implications of the doctrine of the dual nature of Jesus. If you don't understand the power of the dual nature of Jesus, that he is God and man, please come and talk to me because I would say that's like top three most important doctrines in all of Christianity. But for the sake of time and because I know I've talked about it before, we're not going to go through the details now. But what Jesus is, is asking us to, to consider is, am I God? Am I God? Because he knows that that's the foundation of all those other things. Anything else that's going on in your life, anything you're struggling with, any question you have, it, it finds its foundation in whether Jesus is God or not. Like we could look at our life and we might say, you know what, I, I'm not sure I'm ever going to get married. Or I'm not sure I'm going to live in a loving marriage for the rest of my life. Or I'm not sure what I'm going to do when my spouse dies and I have to live alone. Maybe you're working in a job that you hate, but you're afraid to leave that job because you're afraid you won't be able to make enough money. Or maybe you're afraid that you won't be able to ever find a job that makes enough money. Or maybe you're afraid that you'll lose your job because of something that has nothing to do with you. Maybe you're afraid that you're not always going to be as healthy as you are right now, or maybe you're afraid that you'll never get over this mental illness. Maybe you're afraid because there's heart disease or cancer in your family tree and you're looking at the possibility that that might happen to you. Maybe you're looking at your finances and you're worried, am I going to have enough to retire well? Am I going to have enough for the years that I'm going to live? You're worried about your kids? whether you're parenting them while they're little and you're worried about how they're going to turn out or they're a little bit older and you're worried about the fact that they aren't coming back to church. Maybe you're looking at the end of your life and you're afraid of death. And the answer to all those things is Jesus is God. Jesus is God. It's like we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, but, but my relationships and my money and my, and my freedoms and, and my health and my, my mental anxiety and all these things. And Jesus like grabs us by the shoulders and says, hey, 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 hey. Am I God? And if the answer is yes, then he says next, I got this. I'm God. I've got this. Tell that to all your problems. I might never find someone, but Jesus is God. I may not live five more years, but Jesus is God. I may never get healthy again, but Jesus is God. I may end up on some welfare program that I, I feel is insulting to be on, but Jesus is God. 
Jesus always wants you to go back to this principle because it changes every conversation. If Jesus is God, then not only has he guaranteed that someday you are going to live forever in his kingdom with him where all things are perfect and all sadness and pain has gone away forever, but until then he's going to walk with you, hear your prayers, make all things work out for your good, never leave you or forsake you. If Jesus is God. And so that's what Jesus cares about. Do you believe that he's God? Now to work out some of the implications of this, Jesus is going to show us a negative example those who make Christianity religion not about God and about him, and then a woman who does. So let's walk through each of these. Um, Jesus then next says, watch out for the teachers of the law. He gives a whole bunch of examples. He says they like to wear certain types of clothes and get special seats in the synagogues or at banquets. They like people to acknowledge them. They like to make lengthy prayers so that people notice them, but they devour widows' houses, is what he says. Um, of course, we could walk through all of those details, the little things that Jesus says there, but I think the basic point that Jesus is trying to drive home is that we ought to watch out for anyone who makes faith about themselves. Okay, watch out for anyone who makes faith about themselves. I think there are some really easy applications to make of this principle. We could first just look at um, probably the stereotypical televangelist, right? Who is there basically making a reputation for him or herself, asking you to give them money so that they can do what they want to do, but they don't actually want what's best for you. They want to build up their own ministry. And normally I don't call out pastors in, uh, in public, but these people are mockeries of the pastoral office. People like Joel Osteen or Stephen Furtick or Beth Moore or Joyce Meyer um, or uh, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, any of these people, they're working for Satan. Watch out for them. They may sound like they are preaching the gospel, but they are not. They are selling you a bag of goods. But I think there are maybe more subtle applications of this that we probably all should wrestle with. Like, do we ever look at somebody else and say, that person must be a good Christian because of something that's true about them? Like, they maybe act really spiritual, or they make really nice-sounding prayers. They seem like they look in the Bible a lot seem like they care about Jesus quite a bit. Do we look at those things and we say, that person, that person's a good Christian? Watch out. You're making faith about something other than Jesus. Or maybe on the negative side, you look at somebody and you say, you know what, they're not all that faithful. I don't come to church that often. They're not in any Bible studies. And honestly, their behavior doesn't really befit a Christian life. They're not that good of a Christian. Watch out. You may be making faith about something other than Jesus. Or maybe it's internal. Some of you are so worried about how you live, working out, is this the best thing to do? Is this okay? Is this a sin? Is this how I should, should function? Some of you ask the questions, how much do I need to believe? Do I believe enough? Do I believe at all? Should I believe this or that? Who can I trust? Watch out. You're making faith about something other than Jesus. What if we would would take it from the personal and move it to the corporate. Could we look at a church and say that church is a good church because, I don't know, they're traditional maybe? They have all those old practices that have stood the test of time. Hundreds of generations of Christians have said this stuff is valuable. Why would we ever throw it away? Those churches that hold on to those old traditions, those are good churches. Or maybe on the flip side, 
look at a modern church and say, that's a church that's really trying to reach people where they're at. It's speaking their language. It's talking about issues that are relevant to their life. Or maybe we might even look at a church like ours. We're kind of in the middle, aren't we? We have some old things. We have some new things. We might say, you know, we're a perfect balance of both. Watch out. You're making faith about something other than Jesus. Or maybe you could even apply it to a pastor, right? I mean, you know, some people have left our church. Frankly, because I didn't operate like Joel operated. And some of you are really happy that I'm here and you love me very well and I'm so thankful for that. But watch out. Because it's very easy to quickly associate a church with a person. Somebody who is not Jesus. Newsflash, I'm not Jesus. And whenever the next pastor comes here, if he continues to preach you God's word just like I do, then he is just as much worthy of your honor and your love and your respect as I am and as Joel was. It's so easy, brothers and sisters, to make faith about everything other than Jesus. But when Jesus asks this question, he's pushing on us. Do you believe faith is really about Jesus or do you believe it's about all this other stuff? So watch out for those who make faith about themselves and watch for that same temptation in yourself. Then Jesus gives us a good example. Uh, An example of a person who understands that the Messiah is both God and man and is all in on that idea. As he sits down in the temple, he looks at people giving their free will offerings. The free will offering in the Old Testament would probably be uh, as close to what we do with our offerings as the Old Testament had. There were a number of obligatory um, offerings that they were were required to give, but this free will offering was just out of uh, the thankfulness for the, the grace that God has given to you, kind of the same way we give offerings today. So he's watching people give these free will offerings, and people are putting in lots of money, and then one widow comes up, and she brings in two copper coins. Um, these two copper coins would have been called lepta. That's, so two lepta, or two leptin. Um, these two copper coins, depending on who you talk to, are anywhere from about a 50th to a 100th of a day's wages. Anywhere from about a 50th to a 100th of a day's wage. So what the translation reads for us that um, it was worth a few cents. That's probably not totally correct, and it's not your Bible translation's fault. It's just the fact that when you're dealing with uh, currency and economies, sometimes these numbers come out a little bit differently. So for us, in a Canadian context, these two lepta probably would be worth a few dollars. So she throws a few dollars into the the free will offering. And and Jesus commends this woman and says that, that even though all those other people gave so much, her offering is better. But why it's better is something I don't think I really totally understood until I studied this text this time. Uh, see, most often when this text is, is brought out and preached, it's preached about money. Like, you're supposed to give a really big offering to your church, or you know our budget is a little bit behind, so would you guys please help a little bit? It's that kind of preaching that usually happens around this text. And to be honest, it is about money, but it's not really primarily about money. It's about something far deeper, and you can see that in the very last sentence of this text. In Greek, it reads, elabain holon ton bion autes. Elabain, that first word, or excuse me, ebelain, excuse me, is uh, the word to throw. So throw, holon, is where we get our English word whole. So she threw her entire ton bion, you can even see it in their bio, right? She threw in her whole life. She threw in her whole life. It wasn't about money in Jesus' minds. It was about her attitude towards him. She threw in her whole life. See, she understood that 
the Old Testament covenant had provisions for widows and that she was going to be able to find another meal. Somebody would provide it for her. That was the way the system worked. But what she was willing to do when she threw her coins in was give up control of her life. She trusted that what God said about how the world was supposed to work, or at least Israel was supposed to work, was going to be enough for her. She could have kept that money, probably. She even maybe could have kept one of the coins and given one and given a 50% offering and totally surpassed what any of those rich people were doing, but she threw both coins in. She gave up control in the face of circumstances that would tell you to do something else. I think about what this woman is experiencing. She has lost most of her significance in society, obviously has lost her wealth. She is now dependent on a system that Jesus has literally just said is corrupt. Watch out for those teachers of the law. They devour widows' houses. And yet she still trusts God's word and throws in her free will offering. And so the question every one of us needs to wrestle with when we see this woman is the fact that we're willing, or we are called to throw in both coins. I think what happens for a lot of North American Christians is we throw one coin in, but we keep a little bit for ourselves. Again, I'm not talking primarily about money. I'm talking about your whole life. That you're not willing to give up complete control of your life to God. You're willing to give up some control of your life, but not all of it. When you look at the, the craziness in the world, you think, I've got to fight against this. I've got to push against this. I have to post this. I have to, to vote this way. And those things are valuable, but how many of us pray about those things and give up control of those things to God? Or when we're, we're in a marriage that isn't looking the way God would like it to look, how many of us push our spouse away or, or fight against our spouse or try to bring other people in to convince our spouse to change instead of doing what God says, which is if you're a husband, to love your wife in the same way that Jesus loves you, willing to give up everything in your life for her. Or if you're a wife, to submit to your husband as, as Jesus submitted to the Father and the Christ submits to, or excuse me, as the church submits to Christ because that actually is what's going to accomplish the most good in your marriage. You throw in one coin, but not both. Or maybe you're in a relationship or you want to be in a relationship and you know that you have some standards that God has given about the type of person that you should marry and how you should behave before you're married, but you're only one coin in. You want to be with this person or you want to find somebody and so you're willing to compromise on some of the things that Jesus has said. Called to throw both coins in. I said this text isn't really about money, but it's not, not about money. <laughs> You think about your financial situation and how you give your offerings to church or how you are generous with people in the world. Are you throwing in just enough so that you can still feel comfortable with your budget? Or are you willing to lose a little bit of control and have to trust that God is going to have to provide for you somehow? What about your time? When you look at how you spend your time, do you spend enough time on the things of God in order that you just don't feel guilty, like you're completely neglecting him, but you don't throw both coins in and invest in real deep Bible study and meditation and teaching your children and being here for worship every Sunday, being in a life group, bringing other people to hear about Jesus in a, a life talk. I think every one of us can, can identify a place in our life where we've thrown one coin in, we're still holding on to the other one. But Jesus commends this woman and says she has thrown in her whole life. She gave up her control despite the circumstances. And in this, we see Jesus define what true faith is. 
True faith is functional trust. The way the old theologians talked about it is um, that faith is not just merely assenting to facts, like knowing that Jesus did these things and saying, yes, I believe that, but it is actually putting your functional trust in that thing. For example, they, they would look at this chair right here, and they would say, it's not enough for you to know that it's made out of metal and that it's supporting all the other people in this room. You don't trust it until you sit down in it. And so I ask you, have you thrown one coin in? Do you, do you, fun, do you uh, believe that Jesus can do things for you, that he can provide for you, that he can save you, or have you put your weight on him? Have you put that functional trust in him? To maybe press you on this a little bit, look at what Jesus says about the teachers of the law, those people who do make faith about themselves, not about fully trusting in Jesus. He says, they will be punished most severely. I don't know exactly what hell is going to be like, but I know that Jesus says the people who will experience it the worst are those who called themselves Christians but did not functionally trust in him. And so God calls us to, it, to mimic this woman in functional trust, to not compromise with our time or our money or our energy or our parenting or our politics or our sexuality or anything about our life, to not compromise but to completely go all in with him. Because if you don't want all of Jesus, Jesus says you get none of Jesus. If you just want to pick and choose, you don't get him. But when you finally come with nothing, then you get everything. I can't help but wonder if when Jesus was watching this woman throw her coins into the free will offering um, uh, horn that they have there in the temple, if he wasn't thinking forward a few days to the moment when he would also give all of his life, when he would throw in from his own poverty that he took on in order to save us, as Paul says in Corinthians, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. I wonder if he was thinking all of that through as he watched this woman throw in this money. But he, how he, one who was rich, would give all for you. And so it's easy to look at this text and to say, okay, I need to up my, up my commitment to Jesus and to living for him, and, and certainly that's in here. But first of all, it should just floor us and remind us that we cannot get to Jesus by our behavior. That no amount of faithfulness, no amount of generosity, no amount of knowledge of the scripture or doctrinal purity no amount of understanding the old things of the church or the new things of the church or reaching out to the right people, none of that will make you righteous before God. What makes you righteous is that Jesus has given all for you. As we sang about half an hour ago, Jesus paid it all. But you know the very next line of that song, right? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. What the Bible very clearly teaches you is that Christianity will demand more of you than anything else. But it only does that under the assumption that it has already given you far more than you could ever earn for yourself. So give up your former way of living. Give up the desires that you have for a life that looks like the rest of the world or that would make you happy. And put your faith in the one who is God, who the scriptures have prophesied and testified to. And know that all things have been given to you in Jesus. Only that will allow you to start 
to put both coins in. So may God grant that in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for going all in on us, for throwing in your whole life in death on the cross. We pray that that kind of love would free our minds from slavery to the things of this world, to the desires, the passions, the acknowledgement, the materialism, all the things that this world offers. Free us from that slavery so that we can live for you. We ask that you would motivate us by your Holy Spirit to put both coins in, in whatever area of our life we're holding back on you. May you grant that for your own name's sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you like what you heard, why don't you share it? If it benefited you, I bet it could benefit someone you know. Remember, if you want to continue this conversation with me about something you heard today, you can email me at caleb.schultz at crossoflife.net. That's C-A-L-E-B dot S-C-H-U-L-T-Z at crossoflife.net. And if you're ever in the Toronto area, we'd love to have you join us at Cross of Life in Mississauga. Go to crossoflife.net to find out more. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.